The Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast is back, baby. Good to be back with you guys. I am Jeff Wright, one of your regular hosts. I'm here with Jared Moore, the other host of the show. Sorry we've been gone for so long. We've been in conference season and VBS season. Those things have been eating up our available free time, and, and the, the show kind of got pushed to the side just a little bit there. But like I said, we're back, and I don't know if we're better than ever, but we are definitely back. Uh, Jared, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, buddy. Again, it's a pretty day, man. It's... Um... It, no water, which is amazing. Yeah, we've been getting some torrential rain here in Middle Tennessee, and that's going to preoccupy the rest of my day. Actually, I'm I'm going to spend most of the daylight hours outside. If I don't if I don't get my yard under control, they're going to declare it a you know wildlife refuge, and I won't ever be able to do anything with it again. So that's what we're doing after the podcast. But right now, we are locked in on The Incredibles Part Two, a movie that I think Jared and I both very excited to have uh, come down the pike and have the Parr family back in our lives. Uh, Jared, I, I said I think that's the case. Or were you a fan of the original Incredibles? Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed it. It was one of those, like, uh, I mean, I felt the same way about Monsters, Inc. That These two are probably my favorite, Monsters, Inc. and uh, the Incredibles. Um, you wondered why it took so long to get a sequel. Yeah, that it is strange. Uh, did you did you find it weird that they had a teaser at the beginning apologizing for oh, it taking yeah. so long? It was weird, yeah. Uh, there wasn't anything like that with Monsters, Inc., right? No, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Well, like you, I'm a huge fan of the original. In fact, I think all things weighed out. The original Incredibles is my favorite animated movie. And I know that's a that's a big statement, but the the characters, the kind of art deco 50s look of the thing, uh, the themes of the movie, they all combine together to make me say this is the best. Except, you know, the one drawback on this is it doesn't have a killer soundtrack. And as I have been made fun of on these very, uh, you know, digital waves before, I'm a huge show tunes fan. I have a big playlist uh, that's got a lot of Disney uh, soundtrack songs on it. And that's the one thing that The Incredibles is really lacking. But even so, everything else is so strong. This is, yeah, this is my favorite. Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. All right. So let me give you a summary, Jared, and you correct my summary of <laughs> The Incredibles 2, okay? Okay. Changing social dynamics in mom, Elastigirl, out into the world as a well-financed PR agent uh, and test case for the return of superheroes into broader society while dad, Mr. Incredible, learns to manage the family and his own heroic desires as a stay-at-home dad. That sounds good, man. Okay, okay. Well, let's get into conscience warning then. And I'm, I'm relying on Plugged In's review for a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed two what I would call cuss words or foul language in the movie. Uh, there's one that's, I guess, in my mind, in the gray area between <laughs> foul language and uh, not. It, they use the word crap. And then there are there are two misuses of God's name, and that, that obviously is a problem. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they were they were out of left field. I mean, it was um, it's one of those things where they could have said another word, and it wouldn't have been as bad. It's just it's it's frustrating when movies do that, you know? Yeah, it was jarring. Like, to, to see them kind of wedged in there unnecessarily mm-hmm. really pulls you out of the movie. I remember thinking, oh, they just said a cuss word, and I wasn't thinking about whatever was playing on the on the screen. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a dumb move. Do do better, Pixar. In one of the rare instances we have to to encourage Pixar to step up their game. Oh yeah, and, and crap is one of those words that we don't want our we tell our kids we don't want them to say it, but it's you know eventually they'll be able to say it. You know. 
know, probably. Um, not at church, uh, brother. Not <laughs> did you say not at church? Yeah, that's what I said. Dude, tell your tell the story. Tell the story of when you were a teenager at. Uh, I think you were leading. Um, I think it was. You know how we once a year would do those youth services. Was it in a youth service? I think so. And oh you my were gosh. over the King's kids that day. King's kids is what they called it. That's right. Okay, guys. So what Jared's talking about there is we grew up in the same home church. Uh, and I say that we we both were there at different times, but by by our early teenage years, we were we were in the same church, and uh, we had a youth service where the youth were going to do everything in the service. And my task that day was to do King's kids, which I'm sure some of your churches did something similar back in the 90s. Um, they would call kids to the front, like young children, to the front of the auditorium, and whoever was preaching or one of the staff members at church would do an object lesson about the gospel or the kingdom with the kids who came forward. And the device they used to get an object lesson was a mystery box. And so every week the guy would give his lesson and he would hand the mystery box out. Whoever got it would take it home that week, put something inside the box that was then brought back to church to be the object lesson for the next King's Kids that Lord's Day. And let me just tell you, it was a recipe for wonderful application of hermeneutics and uh, consistent exegesis to have this mystery item show up and you have to somehow connect it to the kingdom. Uh, So anyway, that lot fell to me during youth service. I know I was excited to do it. I got the mystery box. I can't even remember what it was, but something came out of there that I just knew I couldn't intellectually, uh, you know, with any integrity, connect to the kingdom well. And so I kind of fumbled around and said something that was probably, you know, embarrassed to to, to say because it was so random. But uh, anyway, at the end of it, trying to own my faults, I told the kids, I'm sorry this was so crappy. We'll try and do better next week. And with, with no pun intended, the, it started a crap storm. Uh, <laughs> like the staff of the church got hassled for it. I had a I had a parent confront me, just like dripping venom. I had to go home and tell my kid what crappy meant. <laughs> I can remember that. That is etched into my memory. And the kid was like two years younger than me. And I was like, <laughs> your kid rides the school bus, man. He knows much more than just crappy. Uh, he's lying to you if he's pretending like he doesn't know what that means. But nonetheless, it became a thing. And so I had to, <laughs> I had to rend my garments and sit in, you know, ashes, uh, pull my beard out, tried to try to make atonement and express my repentance as, as you know, visibly as possible. But, you know, I'm, I'm convinced to this day the church really hasn't recovered from it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it it's was. A, it's a hilarious story. Oh, man. It was surreal to live through, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, two, back to conscience warning, two instances of what I think most people would agree are cuss words or foul language. The word crap, whatever you want to do with that, do whatever your conscience says. And then clearly the, the dishonoring of the Lord by the misuse of his name. There's one other element that I saw people talking about online that kind of surprised me. And I want to highlight uh, the baby of the Parr family, uh, we know from the ending of the first movie, has superpowers. But the family is just starting to learn this in The Incredibles 2. And one of the powers the baby has is that he's a shapeshifter. And when he loses his temper, he takes on a demon form. And it's a cute little you know, baby 
version, uh, Pixar friendly demon, mm-hmm. but it's it's a demon baby. And honest to goodness, that didn't that didn't catch me off guard at all in in this movie. So I was surprised to see people talking about it online. Um, Brad Bird, who who wrote these movies, has been crystal clear that what he's doing with the family and their powers is metaphorical. And so you know, kids think of their dad as the strongest guy in the world. So Mr. Incredible's strong and moms have to be very flexible and uh, they get stretched pretty thin based on all the, you know, the demands of the family uh, and, and the needs of their of their loved ones. And so Elastigirl can stretch. Uh, you know, there's a phase in adolescence, we're told, with, with young ladies who they're very uncomfortable with attention. They wish they had the ability to disappear. And so Violet can turn invisible. And of course, little boys are bundles of kinetic energy, you know, running at full throttle all the time. And so Dash gets to run fast. I just understood Jack-Jack having this broad spectrum of powers uh, to be kind of a metaphor for the way we view children as bundles of potential. And mm. specifically, I thought it was really apt to, to show a baby pitching a fit. Um, Jack-Jack is shown basically to be subject to original sin. He demands cookies, and if he doesn't get them, he turns into a demon baby and pitches a fit. <laughs> and I just thought, well, absolutely. I mean, everybody's seen a kid turn into a demon baby. And you're like, where did this come from? This was a sweet little innocent cherub a few minutes ago, yeah. but you tell it no, and all of a sudden, it looks like it wants to eat your face. Oh, yeah. Um, so it didn't bother me, but I get that other people are more sensitive to that kind of stuff. I don't want to be desensitized to demonic imagery. I just thought it was an apt metaphor. Mm-hmm. What, what do you do with that, Jared? Oh, I, I feel the same way, brother. I mean, I, I mean, we've lived that. Lived kids throwing fits in front of other people and at home. And I mean, it's like they do turn into a, um, like you said, a little demon baby um, for a minute, and then they're a little angel the next. And um, I mean, we we have friends who have experienced that in the middle of Walmart with everybody staring at them. Yeah, um, for sure. We got one friend, actually my cousin, that um, her kid threw such an awful fit. She just left her her cart full of groceries <laughs> in the middle of the aisle and left with it. Maybe just going so berserk. <laughs> so we, uh, my wife has a stepmom and, uh, her dad and stepmom live kind of at a distance from us. They've got a, they've got a child together. And so Christy's got this much younger brother who lives kind of far out from us. And she was telling the story of one time being in the grocery store, a little buddy pitched a fit. Mom corrected him, threatened him with discipline once they got out of the store. And the, the, the boy looked up at his mom and said in the loudest voice he could, I don't know you. You're a stranger. Where's my mommy? Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty intelligent. And yeah, sinister. it was diabolical. Yeah, exactly. Uh, kind of a brilliant stroke, but I don't know what you. I don't know where you go from from there. You have really put your mom in checkmate position there, but you're going to maybe go into federal custody. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I guess I'm just taking from you a similar reaction to me. We're not saying that's what our listeners or anybody else watching this movie should feel, but we just saw it as a metaphor rather than any kind of gateway to the uh, nefarious, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, before we start chopping this thing up, I want to ask you about a couple of film notes on this. 
what did you think about the villain? The uh, not the ultimate villain that's revealed, but Screen Slaver. Mm-hmm. Oh, which by the way, Jared, sorry to interrupt you, but guys, heads up who are listening, this is the the spoiler warning part of the show. So we're getting into specific plot details. Um, just want to want to make you aware of that if that wasn't clear already. Uh, from here on out, you're going to get a ton of information about the specific elements of the plot. So if you hadn't watched the movie and decided you wanted to through that early conversation, turn back now. Otherwise, if you press on, we're going to assume you're you're glad to have the conversation filled with those kind of plot details. So so having said that, having warned everyone, Jared, what did you think about Screen Slaver? I really enjoyed Screen Slaver. Um, thought it was an excellent villain, especially for the, today's time. Um, I know it's for back in the day. Um, I mean, it, what is this set in the 60s or 50s? Yeah, something like that. Um, but I mean, it's it's that villain is today. And, and that's kind of what you and I are doing. Instead of trying to, you know, sh- tell people to stay away from screens, we're saying just just interact with screens as a Christian. You know, we're saying apply mm-hmm. a Christian worldview to everything you see. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how we're kind of answering, um, answering the screen slaver. Because they I mean, the screen will and can enslave you if you just dive into the worldview um, hook, line and sinker. And um, but I, I thought it was a I actually liked screen slaver better than the ultimate villain behind him. Yeah, I'm with you. I actually thought screen slaver was much more. There's a lot more potential there. Did you just say that we're the Incredibles because we we're the, saving we, people from the screen we slaver? Are the, we are the Incredibles. Yes, I am. Um, I don't know who you're I violent. <laughs> you're definitely violent. <laughs> you're Jack Jack. <laughs> I'll take that. That's probably that's probably much more accurate than me assigning Violet to you. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that, but I, I think I am subject to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we need to ask our wives who we are, I guess. Oh, yeah. My wife would say you're Mr. Incredible. Let's not do that on the microphone. <laughs> Let's just let that be private Strong conversation. like Mr. Incredible. Man. Absolutely. Completely confident. That's what the dear Miss Moore would say about you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in more Christy, st- what, what, what do you think Christy would say about Jeff Wright? I just think she would laugh at the question. <laughs> and then then like her Christian commitment to me as her husband would come over her and she would say, uh, Mr. Incredible, because that's like the answer she should give. And she wants to honor her husband. That's that's how that would play out. I'm pretty sure. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. She would get there. She wouldn't start there, but she'd get there. <laughs> Um, again, in more serious vein, I was really compelled by Screen Slaver and the message that that bad guys broadcasting, I thought, was the sort of message that should make people in our cultural moment, but also people who are showing up to a movie theater uncomfortable. And I, I wish they would have spent more time with that character and that messaging. You know, we we saw Black Panther not too long ago really rise to prominence in part because there was a compelling villain, villain that people thought, not us. But lots of people thought, oh, that, that guy's got a point. Maybe we should hear him out. Um, the screen slaver is very much that to a, to a, a much more helpful d- degree. But he gets shuffled off the screen really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I kind of felt that way about now. Th- this is a little strange, but when you're, you know, there was a show on Netflix about the Unabomber mm-hmm. and you're mm-hmm. you're hearing some of his points about technology and stuff. And you're like, huh. Um, it's just, it's interesting. I mean, obviously the fellow was evil and, and kind of out of his head, but there were a few points that he made about technology and being a slave to technology. Um, and I feel that way when I'm driving through Sparta, man, going to Crossville, there, there is a red light in Sparta that changes to red. If you're the only car on the road, yeah, it, it like knows you're coming. <laughs> 
and catches you. Right by the courthouse, right? Yes. Yeah, I know the exact one you're talking about. It drives me insane. I am convinced there is some malicious person at a control box watching a video feed, just flicking that switch and cackling (laughs) their head off like eating Cheetos. Yeah, oh, baby. we are. But anyway, I, I think you're right. I think that's a, that's a very compelling villain because, um, I mean, there's some truth that I guess that's the best villains, right? Mm-hmm. That, uh, that have some truth to it. It's just that they're going about it in, in a wicked way. Yeah, we. I think we want to be on the record that we are not fans of the Unabomber, but not at all. Uh, I'm, I'm a true crime fan. I, I spend a lot of time reading and listening to true crime stuff. And if you've ever read his manifesto, again, the guy was a maniac, particularly in his methodology. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he had a point about a, uh, an increasingly tech, uh, tech savvy, tech obsessed society, and mm-hmm. that's very much true about the screen slaver. Um, are you familiar with a guy named Neil Postman? And and Postman wrote a book that is pretty famous called Amusing ourselves to death. Uh, the subtitle is Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. Mm-mm. I mean, you and, and to our listeners, I'm, I'm assuming some of y'all are familiar. Christy met this. Uh, my wife met this author in her undergraduate work at the University of Tennessee. But Neil Postman was an educator, uh, cultural critic. He's writing in 1984. Let me just throw three quotes at you, Jared. Tell me if you think sure. this guy's somebody who'd be helpful. One, when a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when, in short, a people become an audience and their public business a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility. Oh, wow. That's yeah. 1984, man. Uh, yeah, so let me give you two more. And I'm, what I'm hoping to do is whet the appetite for our listeners. If they've not read Postman, uh, I'm sure we wouldn't all agree with everything Postman said, but I, I think Postman's a good read. Even coming at this so far away, he just saw some stuff that I think we're still culturally blind to. Uh, Again, 1984, he said, he wrote, Americans no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas. They exchange images. They do not argue with propositions. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. Oh, wow. Uh, Last one. crazy. Yeah. So the third quote, and this is a little bit longer. We are by now well into a second generation of children for whom television has been their first and most accessible teacher and, for many, their most reliable companion and friend. To put it plainly, television is the command center of the new epistemology. There is no audience so young that it is barred from television. There is no pover- uh, excuse me, poverty so abject that it must forgo television. There is no education so exalted that it is not modified by television. And most important of all, there is no subject of public interest, politics, news, education, religion, science, sports that does not find its way to television, which means that all public understanding of these subjects, again, I'm just going to rephrase the subjects he's talking about, politics, news, education, religion, science, sports, there is no public understanding of these subjects that is not shaped by the biases of television. Yeah, I think that's true for the most part for the for folks without discernment but probably even you know we all have blinders on in some form or fashion um i mean we're trying to take those blinders off and that's part of what we're doing with this show trying to get people to remove the blinders and practice discernment um but but folks who are kind of just drinking deeply um or embracing i got jeff do you run into folks who just simply can't think like they they most of the folks that i interact with our generation and younger 
they struggle with being able to think. Well, I want to be charitable here because there's a whole swath of people out there who would say Jeff Wright doesn't know how to think because he believes that a man came back from the dead and is reigning in the sky and will come back and we're all going to have to kneel to him. Mm-hmm. I believe that there was a time when a snake talked and that you know the Red Sea parted. So I get that like that's a broad accusation you can throw out there. Mm-hmm. But having said that, yes, one of my primary concerns as a guy whose job is to cultivate disciples, uh, particularly disciples who make disciples, is that it, it's it's increasingly difficult to help people see how ideas interrelate to other ideas, and that basically the law of non-contradiction still exists in reality, and they have to deal with it. Where you try to hold a premise over here, and and you just don't have any concern as to whether or not the the premise interrelates to another premise you affirm over here. Uh, it, it's just really hard to it's really hard to cultivate systematic thinking. It is very much so because of the there's this emotion-driven postmodern emphasis today where folks, if they feel strongly about something, it's right. And uh, they don't even have to prove it rationally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it just blows my mind trying to interact with folks. And so it's harder to share the gospel in today's world because you have to you have to do uh, epistemological work. You have to do mm-hmm. how do you even know truth? How do you even, I mean, you have to, it takes a whole lot more effort just to just undergird to get people to think. I mean, everybody thinks consistently about their bank accounts, right? Or paying their bills or, or they're going to end out on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to thinking about, I mean, virtually anything else that doesn't directly impact them, um, it, it is, it's very difficult to get people to, to simply think consistently. Um, and so it makes, it makes, like you said, it makes discipleship harder. It makes, well, it makes everything because we are, Christianity is irrational and people would say it's irrational because of the things you mentioned earlier, the things we believe concerning miracles. But then those same people would argue that we, we have the same common ancestor as a banana um, and think that that's rational. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the gospel is anyway. a proposition. Yeah. And the proposition that Jesus Christ is Lord is one that has to reframe all your other propositions, you, you know, your sense of understanding of reality. That's the the norm that norms all other norms in the sense of the, the truth claims we profess, right? Absolutely. And it, as people are increasingly finding it more difficult to kind of just think that that's a project worth giving themselves to. I want to be clear here. It's always hard to flesh out as a fallen person in a fallen world, just all the ramifications of the claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That That's perpetually difficult. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like our age has this extra layer of struggle because people, people seem to be increasingly less interested in living an intellectually consistent life mm-hmm. and sorting out what these ramifications are. That's exactly right. I mean, moral outrage is kind of, if, if folks are morally outraged about it, people don't even, they often don't think deeply or consistently or how it relates to the truths of Christianity. They'll just, they kind of just jump on the pep rally or jump on the bandwagon concerning the moral outrage, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And it, and part of it, I think, is the screen slaving. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you tell, you kind of, <laughs> you tell me what to be morally outraged about and I will be type thing. Yeah. And that's on both sides. You know, we've talked about how uh, the, the culture seems increasingly politicized into the, at least in our country, the two camps of, you know, progressives versus conservatives or whatever terms you want to apply. And it really does seem like talking points come down from high at the, 
you know, the thought leaders of those various camps and people pick it up and take it and run with it without ever, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm paying with a really broad brush. It just seems that there's a great number of people who kind of pick up those talking points from others they look up to, take it and run with it and say, mm-hmm. let's, let's make this the focus of attention without evaluating it in light of Jesus's lordship mm-hmm. and his revelation. And that, that's the danger. That's the danger. And it, I mean, it's dangerous for you and me as well. Absolutely. You and I, um, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm very, I don't know, concerned um, about these things because this is how, I mean, it, not thinking is consistently is is how things like abortion gets okayed. It's it's how things like same sex marriage get okayed. It's like I mean, it, it, it's this kind of let's let's do what we want to do mentality instead of what is morally good. Folks aren't even asking what is morally good. You know, one of the most surprising things about the same sex marriage um, passing in the Supreme Court was how it was built on bumper sticker slogans. Like pe- people were not. It was it was built on love who you want. And whenever I would start pressing people on do you, re- do you really believe you should be able to love who you want? They would say yes. And I would say, well, what about, what if it's your sibling? What if it's your father? Mm-hmm. What if it, and then, then they start backing up. And I mean, it just, so they didn't believe you could just love who you want. They didn't believe that that was a justification for marrying who you want. Um, not consistently, but they haven't even, folks had not even considered those things. I mean, it was just, it was so frustrating in the wake of that. And it's, it's also scary because if laws can change like that, and I know some folks may think that this is fear-mongering, but, but you wait. You wait. I mean, if, if same-sex marriage can get passed, they can find it in the Constitution after, what, 200 years. Um, you know, nobody before them found it uh, before as far as the Supreme Court of the United States of America. You know, that that's uh, – <laughs> uh, they, they can find anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's kind of bleak on that front. So, again, I guess we took off looking at screen slaver and, and the ramifications of those ideas um, longer than I expected. But I'm glad we did because I think that guy raises really important questions uh, for for people who are watching this, but then also things to talk to kids about. Uh, Postman could not have seen the rise of the iPad, but what he says about television applies just as much to iPads. And I I was at a professional conference this last week, and there was a psychiatrist there who who deals primarily with children. And he was just talking through some of the surprising dynamics that he's observing in his practice with children. And he just threw off a stat that I've heard before, but uh, uh, he said that right now, the average amount of time on some kind of electronic screen for uh, for kids under the age of 18 is eight hours per day. Wow. wow. Eight hours. Now, he says that's a combination. Like, they're not sitting with an iPad for eight hours straight, but moving from their cell phone to an iPad to a video game system to television to, you know what I mean, all the things that are present. Maybe some of that even happening in school because, you know, learning is increasingly going to uh, digital forms of communication. Yeah, Mm -hmm. about eight hours. Uh, There are ramifications for that. Postman is great at surfacing some of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, to come full circle, I commend people to read Postman if uh, if you haven't. And if I haven't whet your appetite enough, the book is worth reading just for his analysis of the difference between Aldous Huxley and George Orwell in their dystopian novels. And he makes the point that that one is telling you, hey, you know, the government may come along and, and crush free thought. And he, uh, that's 1984. He says, Fahrenheit 451 says, we will voluntarily give 
pretty thought up in the name of entertainment. And he asks you to pick which one seems more likely. Mm-hmm. So it's good stuff. I, I, again, we're, we're into summer, but if you're looking for some summer reading or just something profitable, this is uh, a good book. So Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman uh, from 1984, but it's still widely available in print. So. Hey, would you would you go so far to say that, so based on those stats, would you say that these, the person who controls, controls the screen is the person who rules the world? Man, I hadn't thought about that. That's that's provocative. It it's hard to say no. The cradle, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Yes. Um, So it's hard to say no to that. And and here's the thing that I'm going to kind of I'm going to say. Let's assume that so and play through it. I know the pressures in my own household with my children, uh, with a with a spouse who's more committed than I am to keeping the screens turned off, how much pressure there is from our children to, hey, let's play video games, let's watch TV, let's do that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I guess I'm still regularly disturbed by how few parents feel the authority and the empowerment within their own homes to have a family media policy that they enforce regularly. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, the, the, the original metaphor there about the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, that had the idea that mom was in charge. Mm-hmm. But if mom and, and dad then, aren't in charge, of the screens, the yeah. And, yeah. If mom and dad abrogate that authority, it's whatever wacko with a YouTube channel, the mm-hmm. algorithm Google designed chooses to surface for your child based on their sense of their interests. Yeah. You talk about dystopia. Yeah, and it's also Netflix, and I mean, I mean, it, it's well. It, the point is that somebody else, other than you, mm-hmm. and that's part of our responsibility as parents is to exercise discernment. And I mean, like you and I choosing to educate our children in um, Christian schools. Um, you know what? What good would it be if we are? You know, if we're if we're coming against the Washington D.C. worldview, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if that's what, part of why we're seeking to put our kids into Christian school. We're not we're not saying, you know, you know, getting on to parents who choose to do otherwise. Um, But if we're doing that and and then just letting our kids do whatever concerning screen time, I mean, it kind of it goes against what we're doing on the other side. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Parents are the first disciples of their children. All education is discipleship. And what we're supposed to be doing is being the first conduit through which the glory of Jesus Christ is seen and brought to bear on their lives. And if you throw that away in the formative years, the Lord can do whatever He wants because He is sovereign and good. But just looking at this from a strategic side, those years are literally irreplaceable. And Jeff, Jeff and I, well, I'll speak for myself, but Jeff, you can say, I mean, I am still correcting some of the screen time from when I was growing up. Oh, absolutely. You, absolutely. you know what I'm saying? Like you and I were probably in front of the TV way too much. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we're, we're kind of, that's part of why we're, and so the Lord can bring folks out of that. Like, I, I mean, I think he's brought you and I kind of antithetical to what you and I are, we've, we've been brought out of. Uh, we're undoing some of, of the damage, damage, right? Yes. I mean, I mean, the Lord has brought us to a position, um, kind of, I guess, in spite of how much screen time we. I mean, I, I watch Predator, dude, every night for for probably years. Um, I put, I went to bed watching that movie, and um, I mean, it's. Uh, <laughs> I'm not proud of that, but but I mean, it's it, so undo. <laughs> Oh, but so the I mean the Lord has a way of bringing us through these things, and uh, and He can do that. But but the the point is is that parents, you you are supposed to be a conduit through which the Lord matures your children into faithful followers of Christ, and um, so it's not. 
the TV and the TV is getting, um, I don't say, I don't want to say worse and worse and worse, but, um, you know, there, it is, I don't think it's improving for the better. Would you say that, Jeff, or as well, far as morally? There probably is more content available that's positive, but sorting between signal and noise, there's also exponentially more that's destructive. And uh, even, even if you go up to neutral, because Jared, you were talking about sort of like, Hey, be careful with with entertainment because of the damage it can do to kids, right? Mm-hmm. Really, the goal is how well can we advantage our children? How how strong can they come out of our households? To to what degree of growth can they attain within the sheltering of our home? And I say the sheltering, the the strategic sheltering and deployment of our homes. How strong can they come out? And when you start not just worrying about, hey, we don't want to do damage, but saying, what's the opportunity cost against something that is profitable and will help them get a get a leg up on being citizens of heaven? Uh, you know, by the time they're eighteen and twenty, man, it just looks like the most valuable stuff in the world. When, again, when you see it as a as an opportunity cost, yeah. Good call, man. Good call. Well, so we have we have spent a lot of time here being uh, sympathetic to screen slaver, but I guess not a lot of time chopping this movie up, which is which is the gig. So, Jerry, let's get into worldview analysis. And guys, for those of you who are either meeting us the first time here, or like a lot of you, the first time in a while, we we kind of do a two step process here. We go and look at the worldview of the movie we're looking at, and we analyze it according to the categories of God's story, uh, creation and fall, redemption and glorification, to see how well this film is telling us the truth about reality as it actually is. And then we kind of go back and put that all together and say, here are the big themes. Here are the things that are true, that are false, that that you need to seize on as a viewer first in trying to enjoy the Lord through this stuff, but then also in the conversations you're having with neighbors, loved ones, and your own children. So how mm-hmm. can you profit people through these, through watching these movies? With that in mind, Jared, let me, let me start off with creation and you modify it however you want, okay? Sure. So we're looking at the worldview of this movie. Movie, and we're talking about creation as a category. We're looking about, we're looking after what this uh, movie says is good about the world, right? God created the real world good. Of course, there was a fall, but the goodness is retained in many ways. So, what does this film say is good about the world uh, of the movie? And how does it correspond to God's actual story and reality? So I'm going to say in The Incredibles 2, Jared, that traditional uh, family dynamics are presented as a positive, uh, even as they're realistically shown to have really strong inherent challenges. And I think this movie also, and this sort of dovetails with the original movie, uh, it, it says that humans are able to thrive when they're able to exercise their unique giftedness within the context of a healthy family or team. Hmm. I, w- I want to push back a little bit on the traditional family values thing, because uh, in this movie, it puts the husband at home and the wife in the workforce entirely. Like, it, it doesn't it flip-flop them? Yeah, but I, I feel like in Incredibles 2, it is seen as something that creates a lot of difficulties to do that. You know, they they there's there's multiple times where Helen's like, man, I, I need to come home, and Bob talks her out of coming home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she has real reservations about going to do it. Um, now, I do think she thrives and eats it up when she's out doing it, uh, you know, doing the superhero thing. But there's a lot of they're going on saying this is a really hard dynamic to flip. And I, I'm sure they're not trying to do service to like stay at home moms. My, my family doesn't have a stay at home mom. Um, my family's convinced that Christie's calling is in the home and outside of the home as an educator. And so mm-hmm. um, I don't think Brad Bird is trying to say all women should stay at home. Otherwise, things go sideways. 
But I do think this movie, in a way that's kind of surprising, says there are things mom's better at and maybe dad can catch up to speed on. But the kid's still calling mom at work saying, hey, dad doesn't know where the shoes are. Can you help me out? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't see this quite as bracing as them saying, hey, you just flip it and everything's fine. Well, I, I saw him saying that basically women are better at everything. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's what I, she's better at saving the world. She's better at the home too. Like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go there with you. I, I, I think that's, that that's a bridge too far for me. Okay. But anyway, go, I mean, carry on. That, that's exactly what I want you to be talking about. What, what you see differently from the uh, creational aspects of this movie. Well, let, let's get into that later on. Like in the, in the, you know, what is wrong with the, with the movie. Okay. Well then we'll so, get into fallenness. You want to take the lead on that? Yeah. Fall, I think it's the fall in this movie is the, oppression of superheroes um, mm. whenever they're unable to use their superpowers to fight evil and protect the innocent. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I wrote a little bit broader on that because this is one sure. of the things I, I love about these movies. I, I think in some ways they get into real problems in society that they're saying more about than they know. Although I'd love to interview Brad Bird. I think in The Incredibles and Incredibles 2, egalitarianism is the enemy ultimately because... Interesting. Yeah. They, they want, you know, the world of The Incredibles outside of the Parr family wants to treat people's unique giftedness, uh, you know, and I'll go so far as to say their unique strengths and weaknesses as easily compressible under uh, a need for a manageable status quo. It's like it's all going to go better if we just treat people like cogs in the machine that are interchangeable. And the PARs really push back against that. And beyond that, I think fallenness shows up that um, some gifted people use their gifts for self-serving ends. And, And beyond that, far too many less gifted people are happy to find their meaning and expect their safety and success from the more gifted people who are operating in society, right? Not just so much Frozone, but like some of the stuff the screen slaver was saying, you find your meaning in celebrities and they tell you what to think. And uh, you do see this then with like uh, that wealthy kind of dot-com guy who's trying to bring supers back. You know, he's going to chart the bright new future for society. He's the man with the, the plan to get things back. He's contrasted with those um, insurance case managers who show up after the underminer destroys the town and the, and the Incredibles fail to stop him. And they're like, we had insurance policies. If you just leave it alone, everything would have been better. Hmm. And so there's this idea that we can just kind of put everybody in the blender, get a status quo, and that's the best way to live. And the Incredibles are going, no, this kid can run at light speed. It's a good thing for him to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's good. Uh, redemption, I think you see it in uh, hard work at a given task, which is either Bob trying to figure out how to be a stay-at-home dad or, uh, you know, Violet kind of figuring out her role in the family in a way that doesn't rob her of her identity. Um, that that shows up as a mechanism of redemption. You know, at the end of the movie, Violet says they're on this runaway boat and she says, look, my force shield or whatever will be more protective for the baby. So let me stay with him and hold him so he's safe if we wreck. And that is contrasted with earlier in the movie where nobody wants to take care of the baby while they're doing their superhero stuff. Mm-hmm. So hard work at a given task, finding dignity in the roles of service that life places us in and exercising our unique gifts well, specifically in service to others, I think are the kind of the mechanisms of redemption in this movie. Mm-hmm. That's good. Anything to add to that? 
Um, you know, I, mine was more focused on the supers just being legal again. Yeah. Save, saving the day. Um, yeah, that's clearly the, the plot device that everybody's aiming at and that we're rooting for as the viewer, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about glorification? What's the better world going to look like? Um, a place where um, the innocent are safe and the supers are protecting. Yeah. And uh, kind of a kind of a human flourishing, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll just add in, I think the movie envisions a world where, you know, when we do what is best for others, despite even the demands of our own desires and dreams, uh, it is, is, you know, what a better world would look like. And then uh, in a way I'm less comfortable with this movie says the better world will will arrive when people who are, you know, they have a sense of their own giftedness when they're given opportunity and freedom and empowerment to pursue whatever their sense of giftedness is. That's a little naive to me, but it, it makes sense that this is going to be part of a you know a cultural product coming out in this time of, of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, then let's get into analysis. I'm assuming this is where you want to tell me how this movie hates women, right? And, no, I think it's the opposite. Loves women, hates men. Oh, hates men. I'm sorry. I, and I'm, I'm joking, by the way, but maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll actually get to that. So when we do analysis, we ask five questions. The first one is, what is the story? And we hope to get it right. And that's what we think we just did with the worldview analysis. We really chopped up that story and, and looked at the constituent elements and categorized them appropriately. Uh, there's one thing I do want to highlight here because I'm not sure where else to do this. I, I would specifically say to parents watching this movie, you've got to grab the opportunity to talk to your kids about the interchange that Bob has with Helen and then later Bob has with Violet at the breakfast table around the idea that Helen has to leave the family to save the family. She's got to go out and break the law in order to get a better law and that there's this inherent paradox in the way that they are relating to the societal status quo and the the legal consensus of the moment. That, to me, is one of the most provocative things I've seen in a movie in a long time, and it's particularly useful to Christian parents because we have a unique relationship to the status quo in society and the legal obligations. We are called to be the best citizens of this kingdom mm-hmm. while also having a higher allegiance to a better kingdom. Mm-hmm. And it asks us to think through what does it look like to be a good citizen of the earthly kingdom as an expression of being a good citizen of Christ's kingdom? And specifically, how do we relate to the law? There are times when the law has forced Christians to choose between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the earth. Mm-hmm. How do we know when we do that? Uh, is it a bridge too far when a government tells a Christian you should turn in your Jewish neighbors for deportation to camps outside of the city? Is it a bridge too far when your government says part of your federal tax income, that income for the government, you know, when we tax your earnings, part of that money is going to go fund an organization like Planned Parenthood? And you say, okay, yeah, those are bridges too far. What's the appropriate way for a citizen of Christ's kingdom to go about opposing the inappropriate laws of the earthly kingdom? Is it full on revolt? Do you take the Bonhoeffer option and try to assassinate Adolf Hitler? Do you take the um, reform option of saying, look, we're empowered as voting citizens in the United States of America. I'm going to use my vote and my political advocacy to change, uh, you know, our world where our national world where Planned Parenthood won't get a dime of tax money. I, I don't think there are easy answers to this, but what a gift to be given in the providence of the Lord from a movie your kids want to watch anyway to think about how do Christians relate to bad laws? 
So uh, I think uh, I think Martin Luther King's example, at least in this area. I mean, we we obviously disagree with some of his theology and his, you know, his how he lived um, as far as promiscuity and things like that. But but his emphasis on nonviolent protest where they would break laws, but in a nonviolent way. And suffer, right? They would suffer. Yes. And I I think that that example that he said in that way is something that Christians need to mimic. I think that that, I think that in part would be a good way for us to seek to end abortion in this country where we are, where they are protesting at at things like and offering, um, well, what Christians do at abortion clinics where they're, they're offering help to those who are going in and who are coming out and they're trying to minister to folks while also letting them know. Um, I, and so I, I'm in favor of nonviolent protests where you do break the law based on blatant immorality to our neighbors and particularly our unborn neighbors who can't. The vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, the vulnerable, the the innocent. Um, I, I th- I'm, I, and I, I agree with you. I think that there that this movie provides an opportunity for us to talk to uh, to our children about these realities. And to your point, I'm with you. I think King uh, there's a lot that I, you know, would reject in MLK, but in the way that he picks up the motif of Christ who suffered under the law as a lawbreaker, although innocent, and that ultimately that suffering becomes the mechanism by which the finally unlawful, unjust system that governs the world is brought crumbling down. Mm-hmm. Uh, MLK really modeled that very well in a way that that he is to be commended for and that we should learn from still today. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, it was let's remember that it was MLK, not Malcolm X, who, who you know, who brought um, well, who brought freedom. I mean, true freedom. Um, but All right. So that. That's the story is want to highlight that opportunity to specifically talk to kids about this as you disciple those in your household. Uh, But I think, you know, really that conversation can be had with your brothers and sisters who are, you know, much older, too. I think that's a a constant conversation in the life of the church. How are we Mm -hmm. good citizens of Christ's kingdom uh, while being good citizens in these earthly kingdoms he's called us to? How do we seek the good of the city as members of Christ's kingdom? Well, and it and there's a growing emphasis on today from David Van Drunen's Two Kingdom Theology, where he basically argues that you that the church's primary responsibility is that of spiritual. And so he he literally well, he, argue, it's a responsibility of the church to be spiritual leaders, reformers. Well, you're primarily a member of the spiritual kingdom, and there is nothing from this kingdom that will be redeemed. And so you have no responsibility to redeem culture or to redeem laws or anything like that. And so he he would literally argue. He would have to argue, based on his two kingdom theology, that um, you have a responsibility. So, if you live during Chattel slavery, um, you would have a responsibility as a Christian to not own slaves. However, you do not have a Christian duty to seek to end slavery. Hmm. And um, you know, I have so that that is a growing uh, movement. In and he 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 argues that's historical. Um, and, and I think he's got good arguments. It is in the Reformed tradition to have that emphasis of uh, two distinct kingdoms. It's actually. The reason why uh, Presbyterians and Southern Baptists as well hid behind the spirituality of the church, they hid behind this two kingdom theology, is basically it's not the church's responsibility to transform society. And, um, you know, well, that, that I mean, is, I'm going to say, I think sometimes the church gets lost in their vision to transform society. 
Sure. So there's part of this I'm sympathetic to, but yes, we have an obligation to our neighbor. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have a response. We have a, it is our Christian duty, our Christian duty to love our neighbors. And so that looks like ending slavery, not saying it's not our responsibility. Mm-hmm. And um, that that's the, that's the danger, in my opinion, of the two kingdom theology of this hard dichotomy that I, I think that there's a third option. And it's basically what, what Jeff presented earlier, that you are still a citizen of this kingdom. Um, but Christ is the Lord of both. And one day the Bible teaches that earth and heaven will be one. And so we are running towards that kingdom. And the way you run towards that kingdom is by seeking to bring, in my opinion, you need to follow Carl Henry. Mm. <laughs> yes, sir. Everybody needs to read more Carl Henry. I think he had a good vision of a good understanding of how Christians are to relate to he argued that the Bible is a book for humanity. It's not just a, a book for the church, which is what Van Drunen would argue. Um, the Bible is about human flourishing, period, for all humans. And so what, what that means is, friend, if, if if you get away from the morality that is contained in Scripture. So think of same-sex marriage. Think of murdering the unborn. Think of all these heinous acts against God and against the image of man, image of God in man, um, these sins against God himself. The further you get away from God's ideal contained in Scripture concerning biblical morality, the more detrimental it is to your society the more detrimental it is to our neighbors. And, um, you know, I, I think that, I, I guess to summarize, man, I, I think, you know, Ben Drennan emphasizes natural law kind of being governed by conscience and that being sufficient to govern a society. But in my opinion, you cannot define natural law without the Bible. And so mm-hmm. you cannot, natural law that does not serve Scripture is not natural. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he would argue otherwise, but I, I believe he's wrong. Um, but anyway, so readers, I want to encourage you to go check him out. Actually, I've, I've learned, dude, that uh, his book has actually been, um, it was actually systematic theology textbooks in some of our seminaries, which is, which is, which I find very fascinating. Van Drunen? Uh, Van Drunen. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't know if that's, you know, to argue antithesis or to have to wrestle with what he's arguing. Um, I would say in part, because the seminary it was at was not a reformed seminary. Um, well, I, I know it was used as a textbook at New Orleans. Do uh, better, Van Drunen. And if you want to come on the Pop Culture Quorumdale podcast to answer these accusations, well, we got a Skype call waiting for you, buddy. Yeah, you know that he would rip us apart, right? <laughs> yeah, said, not us. I'm going to sit here quiet and be like, Dr. Van Drunen, your thoughts. Yeah, for real. Um, if you do want to read Carl Henry, uh, guys, you'll see him under C.F. Henry. It's a historical document, but one that I think you can make application your own day pretty well. Uh, Carl Henry's Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism from 1947. That's a good good place to start thinking through how the church should relate to the broader culture in a, in a more modern society. You know, we've had Kuiper and lots of good models for that throughout history, but specifically Henry's great. He's closer to our cultural moment, and you can you can see bridges from his work in 47 into our own day pretty easily. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and uh, as far as a secondary source, um, do, you, do you know offhand who the president of King's College is? Greg Thornberry? Greg Thornberry has an awesome work on Henry. Okay. Um, as far as a secondary source, um, let me look that up real quick. Well, while you're doing that, I'm going to start us into other questions from our analysis. Since again, talking about these movies is the gig that pays the bills around here. Um, the second question, guys, we ask is, where am I? As uh, as someone who's participating in this story as an audience member. Oh, and, here, here it is, dude. Let me. It is a recovering classic evangelicalism, applying the wisdom and vision of Carl Henry. That 
is an outstanding book, and it, it not only summarizes the book Jeff mentioned, but it, it summarizes his very difficult theological works. I mean, he <laughs> it, it's very it's worth the read. So I encourage you. That's by Greg Gregory Allen Thornberry, and it was called Recovering Classic Evangelicalism. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, so again, back to where am I seeing the style and shape of this imaginary world? I guess Jared, for me, in answering this second question, I'm rooting for this traditional family in the midst of a trying world. I want to see the pars prosper, thrive, and have their ends met. I don't really know what to say beyond that for question number two. What, what do you got? Um, I'm I'm very similar, man. I'm rooting for them. I, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, I don't know, man. That I'm kind of mesmerized by Pixar and yeah. the, I mean just just the the cinematography, the story, the sound, the, the music. I mean, even the scary. I thought Screen Slaver was scary. It took me back to the days of watching kind of nostalgic. I love mysteries. I loved uh, scary mysteries in particular. I love Scooby Doo growing up. Mm-hmm. I love Ghostbusters, and uh, I'll put those on every now and then. I'm like, dude, there's some. There's actually some pretty scary scenes, and uh, Screen Slaver was a little terrifying. Hey, uh, no joke. My uh, six-year-old, I've never known him to be afraid of anything, even stuff he should be deeply afraid of. And his grandparents took him to watch Incredibles 2. We went back to watch it, and he came all the way across the aisle to sit in my lap when it was time for the Screen Slaver. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think this movie is legitimately scary, and and parents of young kids are going to have to think through letting them watch it or not. My, my little guy he loves the movie. He wants to see it again. But in that section, he really wanted to. He wanted to be snuggled up with dad or mom. Yeah, yeah. I I thought it was done excellently, man, and uh, really enjoyed that. And um, I enjoyed the story. Um, it gives, like you said, it gives you the opportunity to wrestle with important ideas with your children and and how to relate to uh, society as a whole. And um, as far as identification, I identified with the husband yeah. and how much I depend on my wife and need my wife. Um, I mean, I can imagine life without her even trying to accomplish all that she does would just be insane Um, you know like she is miss wonder woman elastigirl um i don't know that i'm mr incredible but uh i'm i'm the sidekick i guess you could say um in in this whole uh parenting endeavor i reckon Uh, oh jerry you're you're throwing away your complimentary credibility here man you're the sidekick yeah i am the sidekick i mean i lead the home and not but i just feel like i mean she does so much it's ridiculous yeah yeah this is not to contrast my wife with anybody else but our home and in a lot of ways the school she's a part of I feel like both would collapse if she was gone for like three days <laughs> you know and, and again I'm not beating up on the people who run the school I'm, I'm sure my sense of her uh, necessity there is overblown because I just see her as so important but she there's a lot that hangs on her shoulders in a way that I marvel at so yeah um, hey I'm going to go with what's good true and awesome here we're going to be looking for common grace because the people telling these stories, even as fallen people who may have no regards for Jesus Christ, still bear the image of God. And so the good in which he created them is going to surface up. Um, the, the really good thing that emerged out of this movie for me is that moms and dads serve their families based on what the family needs and not on the basis of whatever that mom or dad's momentary and even long-term desire is. You know, 
Bob and Helen do what the family needs them to do, not what they want to be doing. And I appreciate that in this movie. Mm, uh, anything to add there? Um, I wrote too much government is bad. <laughs> that I co-signed that as well. Yeah, that's that's another narrative where you know, in, in an age that seems increasingly, people want to see the government just do everything they think needs needs done. One of the reasons I love The Incredibles is they come around and say, "Are you sure?" Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, what's distorted, evil, and false? How can I subvert idolatry? And I, I'm assuming this is where you want to highlight the the problems you have with this film. So take the take the ball and run with it. I think this movie exalts women at the expense of men. Um, and um, you can push back against that, bud. But Helen is basically the best at everything. Like she's the best superhero. Um, she she's going to do it the most graceful, and she's the she's basically the only one who can help transform the government. But also she is so needed at home that the husband is kind of bumbling um, Mr. Incredible at home. I mean, he, he, there's a learning curve and he eventually learns it. Um, but, you know, she, she's better at taking care of the home than Bob and she's better at being a superhero. And so, I don't know, I just kind of felt like women were being presented as they're the best for society. Um, they need to be out there in the workforce. They need to be out, but they're also the best for the home is kind of what. And so I was just curious about that as far as, well, what are what are men good at? Yeah, yeah I am going to push back on that uh, very sure. respectfully. So the way I read this story, in a lot of ways, The Incredibles 2 is The Incredibles. It's the exact same story. The um, In the first one, Helen and the kids come to rescue Bob. In this one, Bob and the kids come to rescue Helen. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what I think is going on here is that Bob and Helen were both really good at being superheroes. Helen's was more profitable from a PR position. So she goes back to doing something she was already very good at, while Bob has to learn a new set of skills and a new uh, expertise within the family. And yes, a lot of the comedy in this movie is built on him bumbling his way through it. Mm-hmm. But he does get there. And he was the one who was being asked to learn, you know, basically to grow as uh, a character here. He is being asked to learn how to care for an adolescent daughter and a, and a baby with uh, special needs and manage a household and it gets to a crisis point but they weather the storm and he you know there's that scene he wakes up on the couch after he took the baby to stay with um i can't remember the character's name but the one who you know builds all their suits and stuff and he repairs things with violet and he um you know he he gets a plan for dealing with the baby and on the far side of that you go oh okay bob has this isn't normal or comfortable for him but he's learned this new set of skills and i don't think elastigirl is asked to to learn as much. She was doing the home stuff, went back to her life before home life, which we already knew she was good at. Bob's the one, I think, who actually comes out looking like a guy who was willing to to do something demanding on behalf of his family. I think it's less so for Helen, even though she's more reluctant. Um, we just see her go back to stuff she was already good at. Bob has to pick up new skills, and I think by the time the movie's coming to the end, he's done that. Interesting. Okay. The, the other thing I'll say is that the relationship between the, the uh, brother-sister team where um where eventually the the enemy of the movie arises from, you realize that this benefactor to the supers is being betrayed by his sister, who's the technological brains behind his PR front for their company. 
and she's very denigrating to her to her brother in that you know that that encounter with Helen after he, after Helen has discovered what's going on. Um, she tells her she tells um, Evelyn tells Helen, my my brother is a child. He conflated the presence of superheroes with their parents being alive, and so now he's trying to recreate that world. But she is shown to be a maniac, and you know that criticism comes from a corrupt heart, not an accurate read of things. Mm. Um, so I don't think it's particularly charitable to the feminine perspective there. Any okay. any response to that? Uh-huh. I, I say the feminine perspective. I don't mean that as like she represents all women. I mean it as she's one of the women characters who's explicitly critical of men, and she ends up being shown to be a maniac. Mm. That's interesting. But it is a so a, what would you say? So it, it's a a right thinking woman who overturns. Um, I, I see this as I see this as a woman who was pressed into duty, uh, who ultimately in reconnecting with her family, not in a way that like, I I don't see this as her rejecting her family. I don't think you do either, like running off to an outside of the home career. But ultimately, she's inadequate by herself. She gets taken captive by the bad guy. And it takes her family showing up and working together as a family unit for them to succeed, which is why I say this movie is basically the first movie. Uh, That was the exact narrative there. Again, mom and kids come to rescue dad in the first kids and dad come to rescue mom in the second, but it's, it's the same deal. And we both end up learning that like we need each other working together and caring for each other for the bad guy to be beaten and for a better world to emerge. Now I'm very happy about that. I don't need the sequel to like, you know, go off into uncharted new territory, but I do mm-hmm. think these movies are very similar. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, brother. Okay. What, uh, what do you think about, um, what do you think about the stay at home dad? I'm curious your, your thoughts as far as, as far as in line, as far as like in broader society yeah like is this so if this isn't a portrayal of some form of role reversal at all um like your kids watching this you know would they would they see that as odd do you see that as odd or you know what i'm saying like yeah no i i guess jared i don't because i have always seen myself as a primary caregiver in the home in the same way that some of the stuff that bob has seen bumbling through i never wanted to be the stereotypical guy who was like afraid to change a diaper or right um, yeah, it was like a checkout dad who only saw his life outside of the home. Right. And so I guess I, I don't think history bears out that it is most often the case that the husband working within the home and the wife outside is sort of how God generally chooses to use the dif- different giftedness that's given to the genders. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think it's off the table. Um, and so there's circumstances where like, would you be OK? So it, so I, I know it's I know it's becoming more and more popular for there to be stay at home dads in the Christian community and evangelicalism. And so I'm curious your thoughts on that. So let's say the the wife makes more money because that's usually what the case is. It's not it's not due to physical issues with the dad uh, de- being disabled or anything like that. It's usually because the wife makes more money. Well, her, I'm I'm going to say that that would be a bad criteria by which to arrange your household dynamics. But I also think that's true for more traditional systems where the dad is the primary breadwinner. I think there are people who leave, for instance, good churches for spiritually desolate areas in pursuit of a better job. And mm-hmm. that often means higher money. That is a complete spiritual catastrophe that oh, wow. mm. that should not guide the family's choices. Okay. And I, I would I would say the same with a wife. If if it if you're just saying the wife can earn more money, that yeah, that's not a sufficient reason to structure your household. It's not gonna it's not a center that will hold. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I agree. I, I'm just just trying to think through that because that it, that is presented in this. And I mean, I, I'm the same way. You and I, in our generation, all the men that you and I know, as far as pastors, are heavily involved in changing diapers, and I mean, getting up with a kid, all kinds of stuff that probably our fathers didn't do. Um, but uh, and so I, I agree with all that. I'm not saying a, I'm not saying this dichotomy of you're either outside the home or you're inside the home. Um, but in this movie, there that's how it is. He's inside the home and she's out. Yeah. For a season, I think, for a season. you know, yeah. I, and so, yeah, I'm very open to, I'm very open to that dynamic and particularly if it's for a season and that mm-hmm. the, the concern isn't just monetary, you know, grabbing at the, at the brass ring. Okay. If it, if the family functions best in this way, you know, if they, if, if people are kind of doing incredible things, if giftedness and uh, flourishing is best received by dad being the, the domestic leader for a while, my mom's outside of the home. Uh, I think you've got to be really intentional about how you structure those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to be grounded in a in a church that was aware that this was an opportunity and a challenge to your family, the temptations bound up in it. Uh, but yeah, I'm not going to just I'm not going to just pitch it aside as incompatible with a, a robust Christian worldview. Sure, that makes sense, man. So case by case basis, basically. Yeah, a little bit. And and again, I want to I want to know first principles. Like I think you and I both love Nancy Piercy, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And I'm not sure what her home life looks like, but it does seem to me to be clear that Nancy Piercy has a public life that is profitable to the church and that God has designed her in such a way that public life is important for her mm-hmm. uh, expressing her giftedness. I know much more about her than I know about her husband, although I've interacted with him on social media and, you know, email and stuff. I, I found him, uh, you know, very competent. Um mm-hmm. So I, I think really my vision of home life has room for a Nancy Piercy out there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Me too. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I'm not. I don't think I'm standing in contrast to you there. Rosario Butterfield. I'm very thankful for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Jen Wilkins. Those are there's just a lot of women out there who having a public life probably means their their husbands have to pick up some of the domestic load. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that that's thrivable, not just livable, but families can thrive in that. It, but it does have to be handled very carefully. And, and mm-hmm. I guess really in a way that most domestic situations have to be handled very thoughtfully. Yeah, I mean. Hey, one thing, though, that I do, I'm going to ask our listeners for on this. There was a conversation that Evelyn has with Elastigirl after they have like this cocktail meet and greet with new superheroes. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of at the end of the party. They sit down together and they're having conversation over drinks. And I remember that conversation kind of perking my eyebrow up saying, wait, 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 what are you saying here? And I don't want to mischaracterize that moment. I've not been able to go back and watch the movie and I couldn't find any kind of transcript or quote from that conversation um, available online when I was prepping for this episode. But if you are right, uh, and and I'm entirely willing to believe that I've misread the movie and you've read it correctly, but if you're right, my recollection of that conversation uh, makes me think that is is where you would see the elements that you're talking about. Because I know Elastigirl says, here's my positive look at circumstances. Here's my cynical look. And it happened, you know, like my eyebrow perked up about the time that they went away from that scene. So if any of our listeners remember that conversation, that scene, or you're going to go watch this movie again. Uh, look for that. There's there's the party where they're they're with the new supers and things are winding down. Evelyn and Helen sit down in chairs next to each other and start talking about the dynamics of uh, basically public femininity uh, is, is my recollection. And just send me a summary. Email us that or put it on our Facebook wall. Jump into the Pop Culture Quorum Deo 
perpetual after party Facebook group and let us know because I really want to spend more time in that conversation. I just couldn't find it out on the interwebs. Yeah, I don't remember either, brother. Okay, well, let's. I mean, we went really long on this one, so let's get into the final question and maybe give our people uh, a conclusion to the episode. Here's what I'm going to say when we ask our final question, which is, how does the gospel apply? So what we're hoping to do here is help people see the gospel of Jesus Christ more clearly through this movie, to see the glory of Christ more clearly through this movie, and to find uh, themes and elements in the movie that they can use to talk to either people they're discipling, like their children, or you know people that they're discipling through church, workplace relationship, things like that, and also bridges into conversation with people who don't know Jesus Christ, don't love Jesus Christ, where you can say, yeah, let's meet on this common ground and talk about the things of the kingdom. So here's my shot at that. I think this movie pictures the gospel in this way. Our infinitely creative creator, right? So small KC for the creative, large KC for the or, uh, capital C for the creator has given to each of his image bearers certain gifts and native abilities. Those are to be used as a stewardship in service to him through service to others. And this movie pictures that in a, in a profitable way, ultimately, both in this movie and in, in the way that gifted image bearers serve other people and serve their creator, it gives us a uniquely wonderful picture of Christ. Uh, again, he himself being uniquely wonderful in his gifts, his person, his inherent qualities, who himself gave himself in service to other people. And so I see this movie as cultivating an appreciation for uniqueness aimed at serving others. And as a Christian, I say, oh yeah, that looks like Christ, who is uniquely wonderful, giving himself in uh, service to his people to glorify his Father, and through that, God creating a better world. Mm. So that's what I got, Jared. It's uh, pretty remarkable, man. That's a a beautiful (laughs) summary of how the the gospel applies. So you kind of see Helen as a, not Helen, but all the supers, not just Helen, but um, as, as all kind of a picture of Christ, but also how they're only a picture of how Christ is much better, and it's in reality. Yeah, and and in some ways, too, they look like the church, you know, an ideal form of the church where Mm -hmm. this captive taking Christ and his victory parade has given gifts to uh, his people, and they're supposed to use those gifts in service to others as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think think that's great, man. I think you hit the nail on the head. Nothing to add to that? Well, I I mean, the only thing I would add, it's based on the premise that I presented earlier concerning you know, if my premise about the movie's kind of arguing that women are better at everything, um, you know, the the savior of the world, Christ, is still there's still this complementarity, there's mm-hmm. still this um, male headship, male and male leadership for all eternity. Um, you know, sure. Christ is is a man; he is a king, not a queen. Yeah, I mean, and um, and so I wanted I want to push kind of push back on that. I do believe Helen is a type of Christ, though. In this, I mean, could be a type of Christ. We could make that argument where well, she's type of the bride. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But where she's, she's laying down her life. I mean, I, I think Esther in the Bible is a type of Christ. Sure. You, you could make that argument. Sure. Um, where she's willing to lay down her life for her people. Yeah. Um, and um, that's exactly what Christ does. And so, um, but, but still, you know, folks who buck against complementarity, what they, they would still call it folks against complementarity would call it patriarchy. Um, they, they should, 
should have a real problem with Christianity altogether because, well, you, you have a man who's going to lead you for all eternity in Christianity. I mean, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And it's true that the bride is, is his queen, but we submit to him for eternity. And um, if you've got a problem with complementarity, you've got a problem with eternity and Christianity as a whole, in my opinion. Well, I, I mean, much of what you are talking about there, uh, everything really, I affirm wholeheartedly. I think really the, the crux of difference for us is uh, how this movie pictures it. I, I, I'm going to come down to Helen being told by Bob, like, you've got to go do this mm-hmm. for our kids and for us. And so mm-hmm. I don't see her as like stepping out from under, uh, you know, again, I don't think this movie is trying to push complementarianism. Right. But I don't see her as like radically disconnected from her husband either. So you don't think this is pushing egalitarianism, this movie at all? I don't. I don't. I, now, I don't think this movie would care to push egalitarianism. But yeah, kind of my sense and, and one of the reasons I delight in this movie is that I think this movie pushes back against egalitarianism. Yeah. Again, in a way, I'm, I'm assuming the creators aren't entirely aware of, but I think does factor into why people like this movie so much. Yeah. Oh, it was a good, it was definitely a good movie and fits in with Pixar and the excellence that we've grown to expect from them. And the story was, was great. And even the twist. And, um, I mean, it was, it was, it's good. It's very good. It, would you say this is your second favorite? Are you willing to say that? I don't know, man. I gotta, I gotta chew on a little bit. Uh, it, it's on the, it's a candidate. Okay, cool. Yeah. I love Aladdin. Uh, that's oh, up yeah. there for me. I'm trying to think what else. The the Lion King was a, was a, a great one for me. Although actually your problems, like it kills me that but never wins a fight in that whole movie. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So anyway, we'll, I'll watch you on that one. Hey guys, listen, obviously this is one of the times where Jared and I are taking a little bit different read on the, uh, the conclusions and themes and ultimate goods of this movie. So why don't you let us know what you think? Uh, you can contact us through email at pccdpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter also there at pccdpod. But uh, I specifically want to invite you to a Facebook group we've started called the Perpetual after party. It's the Quorum Deo, uh, excuse me, Pop Culture Quorum Deo Perpetual After Party. It's linked to on our Facebook page. Um, get in there and tell us what you think. Am I nuts? Um, is is Jared seeing things from uh, an angle you're not seeing? Just get in there and let us know. That's part of the fun of these uh, episodes is having a conversation beyond them. Very much what we want to do. So um, yeah, get at us. Let us know what you think. And uh, Jared, beyond the podcast, where can our listeners find you on the interwebs. You can find me on Jared H. Moore on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook at All Truth is God's Truth. I've got another podcast called All Truth is God's Truth. Check it out. You can find us on our Pop Culture Quorum Deo, Quorum Deo blog at uh, pathios.com uh, forward slash blogs forward slash Pop Culture Quorum Deo. And uh, I want to give a brief shout out to a guy named Mark. Is it Duran or Duran? Duran um, who hit us up on Twitter. He said the Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast is becoming one of my favorite film and faith podcasts. Oh, that's that was, super kind, I man. Yeah, um, I thought that was really cool. So, Mike, thank you, brother. And, um, yeah, share it with your friends. And if you got any requests, man, you want us to do specific movies or you got any pushback, man, let us know. Yeah, so I'm going to assume that his name is pronounced Duran, uh, like <laughs> the band, right? So it's Mike Duran. 
Yeah. And if you want to check him out on Twitter, guys, it's at Mike Duran author altogether. Mike D-U-R-A-N author on Twitter. Thanks for that kind word, Mike. Uh, that, that actually segues nicely into uh, something I wanted to say to our listeners. One of the things that is so important to us in terms of uh, finding new listeners is the algorithms that iTunes use to, to serve up new shows to people in their suggestions. And so if you're willing to get on iTunes and leave us a review, and of course we covet five-star reviews. But we'll take whatever uh, whatever review you can authentically give. Uh, if you would get on iTunes and leave that review for us, that would be super helpful for us. It'll let us know what you think of the show, how we can improve it. But then it'll also tell iTunes, hey, maybe you want to let other people know about the show because it's connecting with listeners. Um, and guys, if, if you'll spread the word by mouth, if you find this episode thought provoking or profitable, anything like that, uh, tell, tell a friend, say, Hey, listen to this and let's talk about it over coffee. We would appreciate uh, both of those things. So thanks in advance to all of those who choose to do so. And for those of you who don't, Hey, we, we appreciate you downloading and listening to the episode anyway. So thanks all around. Jared, you got anything else, buddy? That's it, brother. All right, so, so guys, next episode, next episode, man, is it Jurassic, Jurassic World? Yeah, we're going into the Fallen Kingdom, baby. I am such a dinosaur movie geek. Uh, looking forward to talking with you uh, about that one as well. So we, we'll be back to talk Jurassic World very soon. And until then, guys, thank you again for listening. We'll talk to you next time on the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast.